On this episode of Larry the Golf Guy, uh, we talked to Jim Richardson. Jim is currently the GM at Riviera Country Club here in Pacific Palisades in Southern California. Um, Jim uh, is someone who comes from a very athletic family, as we talk about, and um, after playing golf collegiately, he uh, spent um, almost 17 years at the Marriott Company uh, in a number of uh, positions at their various golf properties and got uh, great experience there. Um, and uh, we chat about that. From there, he went to Kohler, working with um, Herb Kohler uh, at um, not only Whistling Straits and Black Wolf Run in Wisconsin, but overseeing their property, the Duke's Course in St. Andrews in Scotland. Um, then from there went to Troon, um, where he was a senior VP of operations uh, before coming to Riviera. So we chat about all of those different experiences. And then, of course, focus on um, his roles at the PGA of America because uh, most prominently he was the 42nd president of the PGA of America and finished that two-year term last fall. So we talk about um, those leadership roles he had in the PGA of America nationally um, and his significant accomplishments during his presidency as well as some of the challenges um, for that he sees for the PGA going forward. So uh, up next, uh, Jim Richardson, the 42nd president of the PGA of America, current GM at Riviera, here on Larry the Golf Guy. Well, welcome to another edition of Larry the Golf Guy. And it is my great honor today and our good fortune to have Jim Richardson joining us who um, finished up his uh, two-year um, position as president of the PGA uh, of America and is um, had quite a career, which we'll talk about. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for making the time today to speak with us. You bet, Larry. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, terrific. So let's kind of just give folks a little bit of context and maybe kind of go back to the beginning. Um, I believe you're from Kirksville, Missouri, uh, kind of in the northern part of the state. Um, and I know you one of five boys, um, so lots of uh, activity around the house when you were growing up. I know your dad was a golf coach. Maybe talk about what was it like growing up there and kind of how did you first get introduced to this great game? Yeah, thanks. I, I did come from a really big Irish Catholic family. My, my parents are both originally from Chicago. I was the youngest of five boys and we had a younger sister and our dad uh, was always involved in coaching, actually started out as a football coach, uh, high school and the college ranks. And we kind of bounced around a little bit. So I was born in Kirksville, as you said, then we moved to Utah. My father was on the football staff at the University of Utah okay. and moved to Madison, Wisconsin, where he was on the staff, uh, football staff at the University of Wisconsin. And then we ended up moving back to Kirksville when I was about uh, seven years old and really grew up our more informative years, grade school, high school, and some of my older brothers, college in Missouri um, at that time. So my father was a, a really a football coach most of his career. Uh, got out of that when he came back to Kirksville. Um, 
back then coaches did not make the type of money that they're making now in Division for sure ranks. so yeah uh, one of his big hobbies and loves along with football was golf so he and some of the other coaches played a lot of golf in the summertime was into it and after he had stopped coaching football the golf coach at that time at what was Northeast Missouri State, now called Truman State University. Uh, the golf coach there uh, left and retired, and they were going to do away, actually, with the golf program. And my father kind of volunteered, raised his hand to be the golf coach, and he was for the last 15 years of his career there. And they had some wow. pretty good success with qualifying for the NCAA Division II National Championships about eight or nine times while he was a coach and had a couple kids that were All-Americans. And he really got into the golf side of coaching. So as kids, we were always around sports. So back in that time frame, a small town, Kirksville is a town of about 15,000. It's got a Division II university there. It's about 5,000 students. Uh, and if, you know, back in when we were growing up, if you were a decent athlete, uh, you were recruited to play multiple sports so they could fill out teams. And it was always fun to be around. So we were around a lot of uh, youth sports, high school sports, a lot of college sports around our father who was always coaching. And uh, it was a lot of fun growing up in that kind of era, that time frame. I think sports teaches kids a lot, especially team sports um, teaches kids a lot. Um, you know, hard work, what you put into it. You obviously have to work as a team for any type of success. You should really always be focused more on the team success and individual success. And then golf uh, was a little bit of both because you had individual um, kind of tournaments that you would play in. But in you know youth, high school, in the collegiate realm, you were playing on a team as well too. So uh, it was it was a lot of fun, a lot of great memories. Kirksville was an interesting place to learn golf. It was uh, grew up on a nine hole golf course with no driving range. Ah. I had a little chipping putting green, and uh, the uh, the farmer that owned some of the land adjacent to the course would mow some of the land down and you could go out and, and uh, hit your own range balls and shag balls on your own if you if you want nice. to do that. So they've now developed a really nice, beautiful 18-hole facility with uh, driving range and practice facilities. But uh, back when I was growing up and learning the game, it was it was on the, the old country club, which was a nine-hole course. So yeah, a lot of great memories, a lot of fun, going to a lot of siblings, sports activities. Our sister was involved in athletics as well, too. Oh, wow. So it was a big part of uh, kind of what our family has always done. And and it was a big part of us growing up in Kirksville at those times. Was your, so was your dad kind of your main teacher in terms of learning the game, I take it? Yeah, he, he was an old school coach and still is, right? A lot of ex-players, my, my father's still with us, fortunately, 91 years old. Wow, uh, He Wonderful. still has, uh, you know, players, they call him coach and wow. visit him. Uh, so we're very fortunate in that regard, but. He was always very actively involved in coaching, um, involved, involved in some of our youth teams as well, too. Uh, but uh, we were always around it. Uh, it was something that really is kind of part of our family fabric. Um, so we all played, you know, my brothers and I all played football throughout high school. A couple played in the collegiate uh, ranks. Wow. We all played basketball all through high school. Uh, my brothers either ran track uh, all through high school, I was the only one that actually played high school golf. And then our sister, she played tennis. She was on the girls' golf team, and she actually played basketball as well, too. So wow, we were, we were involved in a lot of games. And the old uh, faux wood panel station wagon went to a lot of small yeah. towns throughout northern Missouri and southern Iowa to go to all the different kids' games throughout the years. 
That's fantastic. Well, a lot, obviously, a lot of athletic talent in the Richardson family, that's for sure. So just focus on you for a sec. So you were, I understand, quite the football player and obviously quite the golfer. So, um, I mean, is it right? Were you all state in football? Is that, I mean? Yeah, I was. I was very fortunate. We had some really good teams that I played on. So uh, we had a very good, my senior in high school, uh, we finished uh, fourth in the state in our kind of division in football. Wow. I was fortunate enough to, to have a little bit of individual and team success. I was a second team all state. Uh, in football, uh, and then all state in golf. But I, I never, to be honest, Larry, I was never the best athlete at any sport in our family other than golf. Um, you know, I had a brother that played on a full scholarship at Notre Dame. Uh, oh, a brother my. played wow. football at Harvard. And <laughs> oh, a brother wow. played baseball for a couple of years at Mizzou, University of Missouri. So we, we had a lot of athletic, uh, they, they got a lot of the height. I unfortunately didn't get that part of the gene. Uh, but it was, it was very fun to, see their success and be able to be a small part of that cheering them on. And it was great to, uh, to have some success in our own right. Our team in high school, we had a really good group of uh, athletes kind of at that same time frame and had some success on the football side. And I was really the only one of my kind of group at that point. We all played football. We all played basketball. We all played baseball in the summer together, but uh, I was really kind of the only one of my friends that actually played golf. Uh, it wasn't uh, quite the cool sport in rural Missouri back in the 80s, um, but it was really, really interesting and fun to see when I went back for some of the high school reunions at the 10 and 15 year. Almost every single friend and buddy I had growing up was now into golf and playing at that point. Yeah, golf, it's so changed. I wish they would have started golf when they were younger. So, so it's so changed. Well, that's interesting. I'm, I'm sitting here trying to think of other notable golfers who were notable football players, other than Harold Irwin being the defensive back at Colorado, I'm, I'm struggling. But anyways, um, you, you sort of focused on golf. Um, how did you kind of, what made you decide to go that direction? Obviously, you know, uh, I take your point, you know, you may not be quite at your brother's level. Notre Dame football is about as high as it gets in college. But, um, you know, you obviously you had other athletics. Well, how did you sort of say, hey, I think golf is where I'm going to focus? Yeah, it was a big part. I, you know, all of just about all the family, you know, played some type of sport in college. And, and I looked at the same. So uh, my prowess on the football side, you know, smaller in stature at only 5'9", it was limited in, in maybe my opportunities there. And uh, I actually picked a smaller school in the Midwest and, and went and played football and golf. But I played football for two years in college. Okay. I uh, played golf for four years. So I really kind of wanted to be a part of that. Loved the team atmosphere of football. Loved a lot of things that football, I think, taught you with the competition and camaraderie and, and the work as a team. Um, so my opportunity to do that was limited just because of uh, my ability to garner you know, football uh, at a higher level. So um, we picked a great school called William Jewell College uh, outside of Kansas City. Uh, yeah. It was very good academically. They actually owned their own golf course. Just Oh, wow. Campus. That's great. Uh, they had really good athletic facilities for a very small school. At that point, the Kansas City Chiefs used to do their uh, preseason training there. Oh, so they wow. had to put some money into the facilities. George Toma, the legendary. Yeah, the god of sod, yes, right? Yeah, the god of sod. <laughs> he, he actually took care of the field. 
Wow, uh, you don't so, get any better than George Toma when it comes to grass maintenance. <laughs> yeah, I used to tell a lot of friends after my college days that uh, William Joel College, which had about 1,100 students at the time, might have had the third or fourth best grass football field in the country. Uh, wow. Just because of George Toma. That's awesome. Um, so your four-year letterman, captain of your golf team, as you said, played all year. Talk to me kind of how you're thinking now you're in college about golf and, and sort of thinking about um, your process, your thought process about how you got to sort of saying, hey, this may be something I want to focus on for my career after college. What was your process in that? Yeah, looking back on, I was really fortunate. One of the collegiate tournaments we played at was in the Lake of the Ozarks, Missouri, at yeah. a Marriott resort at the time called Tantara. Okay. They used to have an event called the Missouri Intercollegiate, where they had a couple different divisions, but they invited every single school in the state from the University of Missouri, Missouri State, which were Division One, all the way down to Division Three and NAIA schools. Um, and then later at times, they even had JUCO programs invited. Mm. They had different divisions that you could compete on. Uh, Tantara was a top 10 ranked golf course in the state then. It had state amateurs had the old big eight championships when Scott mm -hmm. Plank and others were at Oklahoma yeah, State. Right. Um, so very bonafide golf course. I played in that tournament my freshman, sophomore year, and then you know, inquired about a summertime job. It was it was a very seasonal type of area of the country. Right. A lot of smaller kind of mom pa, you know, uh, resorts, hotels, restaurants, and things of that nature, all kind of centered around, you know, the Lake of the Ozarks and water sports. And I was fortunate enough to get a job then. And the gentleman that was the um, head golf professional then was a gentleman by the name of Bill Nault, who had been a graduate of a professional golf management program through Fair State University in Michigan. And uh, you know, Bill was really kind of my first mentor. And later he is now the senior vice president of operations for Marriott Resorts, overseeing all the golf courses under Marriott and Ritz Carlton and that brand. And, you know, he kind of took me under his wing and said, you know have you ever thought about going into golf as a career and going into the business? And that's kind of how I started the conversations and timing was really fortunate because Marriott at that time only had a handful of golf resorts. Obviously they had thousands of hotels, but they were really now starting to focus on and it had right about the time that I went to work there as a college kind of summer intern, they talked about expanding that and they thought that was a very viable business to grow get much more into, you know, um, corporate groups, uh, utilizing a lot of the resort amenities to attract corporations uh, and that type of target versus just the business traveler. Um, and so they were on a big push to open up um, several new golf resorts around the country. And as they were expanding, their company history had been very good training programs for their associates. And they were very big about promoting from within. So, as they expanded at this point on a lot of their golf resorts, I was starting out with the company. And so there was great opportunity to, to continue to grow and kind of move up the ladder, so to speak. And that's the advice that Bill Nolte had given me and said, yeah, I can't tell you what to do personally, but if I were going to give you a recommendation fresh out of college, being young in your 20s, if you stayed single and if you were willing to relocate and move, you're going to have a lot of really good opportunities with Marriott and potentially really move up uh, the chain, so to speak. And I really took that to heart and it allowed me to quite frankly, move around the country, see different areas of the country. It allowed me to work at 
public, private, resort facilities, and uh, really kind of garner a lot of different experience in a lot of different areas of the golf business. Uh, and it really, really helped me along the way uh, be open to and get exposed to other opportunities. So you're doing this. I think you ended up, what, 17 years thereabouts at, at Marriott, which is quite a career. Um, and um, it's interesting because you, I mean, I, and we'll we'll get, of course, to your, you know, national positions with the PGA, but you're coming, you're, you know, you, be, you become a PGA member, but you're not, you know, green grass golf course, you know, kind of typical um I was going to say typical, though the more people I talk to, it's amazing, you know, how many people similar to you are, you know, PGA professionals, but go into the management side. But anyways, you know, at least back then, probably a little less typical. So you're pursuing that, get your PGA card. Um, did you ever sort of at any point sort of think, gee, you know, um, maybe I want to go back to or try some of the club stuff or, or were you sort of, and Marriott is a phenomenal company. So I hear you on the training or were you sort of saying, God, you know, this is really where I, I'm more on the management side than being a, you know, director of golf. And this is kind of suits me better. I assume that's kind of what the path you went down, why you went down that path. Yeah, absolutely. And really for the first 10 or 15 years, it was very green grass, just was owned by a large company. Got it. I started okay. out as an assistant golf professional, kind of moved my way up to, in their system, what they call golf shop manager, later I a head, okay. head golf professional. At Got one it. point, I was a director of instruction, a full-time teacher, and running an academy, then moved into a director of golf position, overseeing golf operations, and later as a GM of properties and then multiple properties. So it was Got kind it. of a progression. So I got really all of the green grass experience really learned everything about the golf business from very entry level. That was my first job was basically pulling carts, picking the range, <laughs> cleaning the parking lot, you know, working all the way up as an assistant pro later to a GM. And then it, from there, because of they were owned by a large company, managed by right. a large company, there was opportunities to do some multiple facility operations. There was opportunities to actually go overseas when some transitions of some flags from resorts Oh, wow. um, changing over to like a Ritz Carlton brand, right. gave me an opportunity for a little bit of international travel. And that got tied in a little bit to more of some of the corporate programs. And then from there, it gave me some other opportunities, which to your point would be considered probably more executive type and, and corporate type positions versus the traditional green grass. But for a good, you know, 12, 15 years, it was very green grass, just uh -huh. was with a company that you know, was very corporate. Really, looking back, that gave me a great balance of both. Totally, um, yeah. All of the things that everybody deals with as a green grass golf professional, but getting very, very exposed to things, you know, like very large budgets, spreadsheets, having to do a lot of public speaking, getting involved in new business development, transition and takeovers, a lot more HR and legal that uh, goes along with some of that. Sure. So it gave me that transition to really get in and learn a lot of that while still having my feet in green grass and then obviously that has transitioned a little bit over the latter part of my career. Yeah, that's perfect. No, that makes perfect sense. Like you say, I mean, you, you got all the green grass positions. It just was the same corporate owner as you went from place to place. So that's, that's ideal. I could, what, what great training. So yeah, it would kind of move the clock forward. We're like 2007 ish or so. And you end up going um, to Kohler um, and um 
Uh, I hadn't realized until you mentioned earlier that you'd actually had a little time in, in Wisconsin, although in Madison. Um, but um, talk to me about kind of how that came about and, and your thinking on making that move. Well, I had left Marriott Ritz-Carlton after 17 years, as you said, and I, I got an opportunity to actually work with the PG of America. Oh, okay. At that time, they had a very small kind of golf operation, you might say. They owned and operated and still do what's called PGA Golf Club in South Florida. And then they owned at that time Valhalla in Louisville, Kentucky. Right, sure. Partnership. And then uh, they were marketing agreements, allowing a couple of resorts to use their marks and name likeness with PJ National Resort in Florida and PJ West out in California. Right. At that time, looking at a new property potentially outside Vegas with a developer as well, too. So I got hired to oversee all that portion of golf, basically. And those relationships for the PGA. And in that regard, obviously, Kohler and Whistling Straits had just hosted PGA Championship in 2004. So they had had a lot of um, communication with and business with the PGA of America. I had my position with the PGA of America in 2006. And the person that was in charge of all the golf for Kohler left for another opportunity. And Herb Kohler reached out to didn't really do a typical national search. He reached out to uh, people that he really knew in the golf industry, kind of said, hey, this is what I'm looking for. You kind of know me and my business practices and what I'm about. If there's somebody you think might be a fit. Fortunately, one of those individuals gave him my name. And so then I got into the interview process there. And again, I had obviously was very familiar with the Kohler brand being such an iconic, you know, worldwide company, but a very iconic Wisconsin company. Having spent some years there as a kid, we had still had a lot of really close family friends that lived in Wisconsin. Um, So, you know, we we frequented Wisconsin on visits. We knew a lot. I'd stayed in touch with a lot of people. And then obviously, you know, the brand of Kohler, they had just had a very successful PGA championship. So it's very fortunate to get into that interview process and go through that and, and be offered the position. So I got to spend, you know, 11 years working for Herb Kohler, the Kohler family, phenomenal staff of people we worked with throughout the resort and the company, uh, phenomenal golf facilities at Black Wolf Run, Whistling Straits. Uh, and then later he purchased the Old Course Hotel in St. Andrews, Scotland. Right, right. And with that, he purchased what's called the Duke's Course, which is just outside uh, the kind of the perimeter of the university there. It's about three miles from the Old Course. So um, I had responsibilities of managing that facility as well, too. So that gave me an opportunity to travel to the UK quite a bit, get involved with people in the golf business uh, on the other side of the pond, so to speak. And he went through, you know, several years of looking for and trying to find other land around the world to develop into kind of the next great, you know, whistling straits type course. Um, so that opportunity not only gave me an opportunity to get exposed to and learn from somebody with his business acumen and background and what they have done in not only kind of golf and what they developed in Wisconsin, but just his mindset from a business standpoint of how he grew, you know, this large plumbing kitchen company when he took over where it was a few hundred million dollars to now it's, you know, several billion dollar company. Right. Exposed me to things and an opportunity to travel around the world and meet a lot of people and, and do different business with people that were involved with the RNA or the European tour or the European PGA. Uh, individuals, you know, in Asia, 
Kohler's got huge businesses, not only in North America, but in Europe, South America, Asia, and it all tied in one way or another to golf and gave me an opportunity to travel to some of those locations and meet some very, very interesting people from some very diverse backgrounds uh, with the common goal of that they all, one way or another, love golf. Um, and Kohler utilized and saw how golf could really, really help the core portion of the business. You know, Herb used to say all the time that, you know, the plumbing business had been around for over 100 years, and he got more um, PR value out of building a golf course in tiny Kohler, Wisconsin, than he ever did in building the greatest plumbing products, you know, that he ever could think of. So they really <laughs> took that, though, an opportunity to utilize golf to how could it benefit, you know. So one thing I think, and I used to hear him say, you can go visit a partner at their boardroom and whatever company their headquarters is at or ask them to come visit you for a series of meetings. You might get them to come, you might not, but invite somebody that plays golf. Hey, would you like to come? We'll meet, we'll sit down, we'll talk about our business. And while you're here, why don't we go out and play Whistling Straits? Right. Or why don't you come to St. Andrews and we'll play the right. old course and the Duke's course. You typically get a lot more people that accept that invitation. And, uh, but I think golf also gives you the opportunity. You spend four or five hours with someone. And you right. really kind of your guard comes down a little bit. It's much more uh, engaging. You really find out about people and their personalities, likes, dislikes, not only on a personal basis, but I think on a business basis as well, too. A little bit easier to develop that type of relationship and I think build upon the personal and the business relationship at the same time. So um, they utilize golf in that way very, very successfully. Uh, and that really taught me a lot in that respect as well, too, on how to use golf uh, for more than just golf, for some right. other purposes that uh, might be really beneficial. That's awesome. And, um, and, you know, during your time there, I mean, you referenced the 2004 PGA, but during your time there, you had a number of tournaments. I think you have the, both the 2010 PGA, kind of famous for Dustin Johnson, not realizing he's in a bunker on 18, um, the way that tournament was played with all those waste areas, 2015, when Jason Day was playing so great and, um, you know, Jordan Spieth was what three shots away from the Grand Slam. He was a couple behind Jason and missed at St. Andrews by one. You had the Women's Open, I think, which was probably down the street a little bit at Black Wolf. Um, I mean, which is you know, for people who haven't been there, it's an incredible resort with the American Club and um, people. I think at this point with the Ryder Cup, particularly last time, everyone is pretty familiar with Whistling Straits. But there's the Irish Course, you know, right there and you know, and and more of a parkland set up with uh, two courses down, you know, near where the American Club is, where the U.S. Women's Open was. So it's an incredible facility and it's an incredible and back to Whistling Straits. Yeah, I have no doubt that that's a good draw for somebody to come meet for business because it really is amazing. Right. In terms of the land that Pete moved, Pete Dye moved uh, to create, um, you know, that links look and and it just it's so visually striking i mean of course people who aren't i lived in chicago for a number of years so i'm familiar with the midwest and uh like you are and that lake may as well be an ocean it's so vast and you know you just look out at it in those par threes that hang over there it's just, it's just an incredible facility that must have been really neat what was it like having all those major tournaments there that must have been fun for you yeah it was really fun i mean I, you mentioned it but got to really work with Pete and Alice Dye a lot as well, too. And Mr. Yeah. Kohler had a really great relationship with them. He sure did. Yeah. And 
I think that whole complex really showed the kind of mastery of Pete because yeah. Black Wolf Run, he took the natural land. For those that haven't been there, as you said, if you picture the hunting, fishing type of country, upwoods country right. in the northern part of the Midwest, that's exactly what that property was. And he moved very, very little dirt. And he really used the natural terrain, the topography, he used the Sheboygan River that runs through. Right. And it's a masterful job of being really, really natural in the setting. And then, as you said, you go nine miles north up the road on the lake, and it was a dead flat piece of right. property that, you know, he trucked in hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, you know, trucks of dirt. But to have that imagination on what yeah. he was going to do to develop it and the, the aesthetic, just unbelievable beauty on what he built there. And it looks so natural. And when right. you get inside the gate, it looks like it should be there. Totally. It's yeah. unbelievable. So. That was a that was a great thing to be involved with. Uh, as you said, we did obviously a lot of corporate outings. Uh, we did a lot of local tournaments from Wisconsin State Opens to some of the Wisconsin PGA section events. But getting involved in some of those majors while I was there, we were involved in the US Senior Open, which right. Tom Watson was leading till nine holes to play. Right. As a kid growing up in Missouri, he was an idol. Um, sure. you know, and getting to see that, to your point, the 2000 10 and 15 PGAs, which had some dramatic finishes to them with playoffs. And as you said, Dustin Johnson and the bunker, we had the 2012 women's open at Black Wolf Run. And I can still remember, uh, so Yoon was, uh, Rue was the defending champ from the Broadmoor the year before. Right. And she had idolized Sari Pak right. who had won the 98 women's open at Black Wolf right. Run and how emotional it was for her to be the defending champ there that her idol had won. That was really, really special to be involved in. And then getting a chance to to be involved in a lot of the prep and planning for, you know, a Ryder Cup that was going to be brought to the state um, was a really just very, very fortunate and lucky to be involved uh, in those events and to be involved in the resort at that time when they were hosting so many of those. And even in Scotland, we hosted a Scottish amateur and a Scottish okay. four ball and things. So you know, they were very big. And obviously the hotel there was host to, the Dunhill Links Championship as they were playing the other courses. So we were preferably, you know, we we're kind of on the peripheral vision of, of that, so to speak. And um, But yeah, I was very, very fortunate to be involved in a lot of those. And I think as a PGA member, um, you know, for so many years, when you get an opportunity to be involved in the PGA Championship or the Ryder Cup that's hosted at your facility, knowing what that means to the PGA of America, knowing what it means to so many PGA members, you know, take a lot of pride in that event going well. Um, and I know the entire team there, PGA members and other staff members, always took an extreme amount of pride in those events being as good as they possibly could. And was, was very fortunate to be part of the team involved in those. Yeah, for sure. Um, that's awesome. And uh, yeah, and I was thinking, I, I mean, how cool is it? Um, and we'll get to your PGA service, uh, but to be president, I mean, you're, 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 I think at that point, probably a troon, but which we'll talk about in a minute, but to come back to Polar, you know, and to have a victorious Ryder Cup during your tenure, be at your old stomping grounds at Kohler. Very, very cool. Talk to me about um, how you then uh, caused you to move to Troon. Uh, very different um, uh, set of uh, situation. Um, what was what was that like and what led you to do that? Well, I've known you know, Dana Garmany, who started Trim. 
uh, as a PGA member, and, and he later then grew it and is the CEO and the chairman of that company. I've known Dana for a number of years, and Dana had actually hired a lot of ex-Marriott golf people uh, to help grow hmm, that company. Okay, interesting. Like I didn't know that. John okay. Easterbrook and and Mike Ryan and Mitch Harrell, you know, several of the, the operational execs were all ex-Marriott golf professionals and PGA members, so uh, several of the people that that started and helped grow Troon uh, were individuals I'd known for 20, 25 years. Always really highly respected Dana, uh, the work that he had done. And now Tim Shantz, who's the CEO, just the entire group. And you know, they were on a, a big um, a growth curve as well, too. They had uh, you know decided to take on equity partners over the years, decided to uh, kind of grow organically for a number of years in the company. And when I started with Trim was a time frame where they were really starting to then decide to acquire other businesses that were involved in golf. So Trune had acquired some other smaller management companies like OB Sports um, and what used to be Billy Casper golf turned into oh, yeah, Indigo. Sure. Yeah. Trune uh, had acquired Indigo Golf. And then they also started to acquire other businesses that would be involved in kind of the club business and the golf business, meaning they acquired a tennis management company because a lot of private clubs and resorts have tennis as well too. They acquired a food kind of expert called Real Food out of Philadelphia that was a food expert that would come in, clubhouses that were redesigning their clubhouse or reimagining their food and beverage outlets, maybe for new themes and new menus, how to lay that all out from the kitchen all the way to the front of the house. Um, and then they've acquired several other companies uh, in the golf space. So when I started with Trude, I believe in 2017, there were about 230 golf courses around the globe. They're now over 650 golf wow. courses around the globe, wow. as well as then some other portions of golf. They've got a caddy management company that do the caddy services at some of the most yeah. well-known courses I saw that. Yeah, in the country. Absolutely. They've got a tennis management. They've got food management services. So they've really, really grown in that you know, space of not just golf, but club business, private club business, resort business. And, and Dana is a really, really sharp individual. And Tim Shantz, who's the current CEO, is really sharp. And that group is going to continue to grow. Uh, they're just going to get bigger and bigger in the right way. I think there's, you know, you can grow too fast. You can grow just to grow. But uh, Dana was smart, in my opinion, because he always kept control of the company. So it would never grow in a way that he and others didn't think was right for the brand of Troon. And, uh, I think the world of that company, they're great. They're really, really good to me. They gave me other opportunities to be involved again, even further, you know, kind of business development, transition and takeovers. Um, and, you, you know, you go from managing a staff, even as large as at Whistling Straits, where it was a few hundred people, uh, you know, Troon has over 18,000 employees. So right. uh, it's on a much bigger scale and, was something that I just wanted to continue to hopefully uh, learn and add, you know, hopefully more skills to your kind of toolbox, so to speak. And and Dana and Tim and Trim gave me that opportunity. That's awesome. So you're senior VP of operations there, I think. So as you're kind of alluding to, it's a fast portfolio, not just golf. You've got F&B operations. I'm sure that you had to oversee. You've got locations spread, not just around the country, but around the world. So I mean, you must have had to do a lot of, I, I assume, a bunch of traveling. I mean, that's just, that's a huge job, right? 
yeah, I was one of several, you know, vice presidents or senior vice presidents. So they are very good about splitting the workload up uh, amongst everyone. So uh, I absolutely cannot create, take credit for overseeing everything. I had my portion of operations and things involved with, but you are correct, Larry, when you're in that role, those individuals in that role, they're, you know, they're involved in operations, they're involved in food and beverage, they're involved in grounds maintenance, they're involved, involved in, you know, everything that goes with a normal operation overseeing that. And at that level, you're kind of the conduit and uh, you are the helping resource to the courses in the field. So you're working directly with general managers and golf professionals at those facilities, as well as the owners or the boards of private clubs. So a lot of that is building the relationship, understanding what each club needs, utilizing the resources of a company like Troom. Some courses need more resources and you know, operations, some need more resources in food and beverage, some at different times needed on the retail side or on the kitchen side or on the PR marketing side. So Troon has all those resources. It's bringing them right. together uh, in a way to help the, the facility as best that they need it. And uh, it, it was it was a great additional learning um, for you know how you put all that together to make sure you can support the people in the field, so to speak, so they can be successful in what they do. Makes sense. So, um, and then we got you uh, tempted to go from Scottsdale to Pacific Palisades. Um, so, uh, with of course the one of the most iconic clubs in the world at Riviera. And um, you know, just for our listeners, I mean, I only post the audio, but Jim and I are sort of on Zoom, and I'm sitting here transfixed by his background, which not only, of course, has the iconic clubhouse, but I think probably it's the second hole I'm looking at that bunker 40 yards short of the green, which I've been in more times than I could count. But um, it's an incredible club. Talk to me about kind of your process of um, deciding to uh, move west, further west uh, and come to Riviera. Yeah, you know, as you said, it's an iconic facility. So an opportunity to work at an iconic facility just does not present itself very often. Um, and it is truly an iconic facility. And, the, the history of the LA Open that's been here, um, obviously Hogan winning the Open in 48, two PGA championships being hosted here, and now we've got some other championships moving forward. Genesis Invitational, you know, I believe because of player comments, they view it as one of the best facilities they play on the oh, tour. Oh, for sure. There. Yeah. And we'll be hosting the 2026 Women's U.S. Open which is also our centennial year will be a really big year for us. Wow. Olympics come back to the Los Angeles area in 2028. Right. We'll be hosting the men's and women's Olympic golf competitions. And we're, our owner is very focused on having future championships beyond that. So we're having a lot of really positive conversations and, and uh, we're, we're, we're hopeful that we'll have future championships beyond that as well too. And, and, no, I'm a I'm a father now, and for a, a number of years of my career, Larry, I was single. Uh, and my wife and I have a 13 year old daughter, and Wonderful. her passions are dance and music and theater. And you know, in the United States, there's two probably great premier places for that: L.A. and New York. And right, uh, an opportunity for one to potentially have our daughter be exposed to opportunities of things that she's passionate about. The opportunity to work at an iconic. Uh, facilities you said like Riviera and knowing through the process uh, the vision that Mr. Watanabe the owner and his daughter Megan Watanabe who's the president of the club 
their vision for what they want in the future and then how they plan to get there. Uh, was really exciting to to come, kind of come aboard to be a part of. Um, again, as a golfer, obviously I know Riviera, know the history and a lot about it. Um, it, it is a very iconic uh, facility. You know, being here every day, when you get a chance to be involved in some of the events, even just ride the golf course with a superintendent, uh, ride it with members, get a chance to play with a member. Uh, the members here, the very iconic group in its own. Right? Yeah, that that is for sure. I can and the few times I've played there, the people you run into there, um, there they are. That's a good word for it. <laughs> and it's a true, you know, you can come from a lot of different walks of life, all kinds of backgrounds, but golfers all seem to have that same passion. Yeah. I don't care if you're a very recognizable athlete or celebrity, or you come from the business world, or you come from a you know, very, very um, different background in business, labor, politics, whatever it might be. It seems when you get all of those different people from different backgrounds together at a golf facility or a golf course or a golf event, they're all talking about golf. I mean, they're yeah. just so passionate about golf. And we have so many members here that are just really passionate about the game of golf. They're passionate about the club's history. Uh, they want to make sure that that's retained and cherished. Um, they really, really get behind the Genesis Invitational. You know, as a lot of old timers would say, the LA Open. Uh, and they're very, very excited about the, the coming events that we have. And, and uh, it, it's, it's really neat. We've got a great membership that's really, really supportive. We've got a phenomenal ownership that's got some great vision and plans for the future. And uh, it's, it's fun to be involved uh, in a small way, a, a part of such an iconic facility. For sure. I'm curious, have you had you before you came to Riviera, had you played it much? Were you familiar with the course? I know you knew of it, but had you actually experienced playing it very much before you uh, became the, the GM there? So I've got a unique history, Larry, and I have almost never played most of the premier facilities that I worked at. So I had never been to Kohler or Whistling Straits or Black Wolf Run before I went to interview for that position. And I had not played Riviera until after I was hired for this new position. So, um, you know, wow. interesting. Obviously knew of both of them uh, and watched events that had been there, but I'd never actually physically been on either property until I worked there. And even several of my positions and moves when I was with Marion Ritz Carlton were based on, again, that advice I got very early on from Bill Nault to be willing to move and go. So. Even though I had worked in Missouri, I then took an opportunity in Scottsdale, Arizona at the time, and I had never been to Arizona. Mm. And from there, an opportunity to go to Long Island, New York, and I had never been to Long Island, New York. Then an opportunity to go from there to Napa Valley, California, and I'd never been there. And an opportunity at one time to work in Hawaii. So, you know, a wow. lot of just uh, wow. a little bit of kind of adventures and go. As, as I got later in my career, obviously, the reputation of Whistling Straits, having just hosted a TJ uh, Championship and already knowing of Black Wolf Run, and then, as you said, the iconic status of Riviera. But now I never, I never played either one until I actually got hired for the position. So I, I just that that's that is that is actually funny. I mean, it and it is, it's such a tremendous golf course. I mean, for those, I, I always sort of when I talk golf architecture with people, and of course, you know the as you know because you've been out here a few years, particularly you now with the U.S. Open at LACC, you guys have the 
Women's U.S. Open coming, as you alluded to, we had Amy Alcott on a few months ago, of course, who was, you know, a driving force behind trying to make that happen. And I, um, uh, and it's great, by the way, so, you know, to see the Women's Open going to such great courses now, Pebble this year and Riviera in a few years. But the, but for people who haven't, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people have seen it on TV, of course, have. but if you haven't been here, I mean, it was, a, you know, you were talking about what Pete did um, at Whistling Straits. I mean, this is in the Santa Monica Canyon. And uh, at the risk of um, ruffling feathers of my friends who all of my partners who are at LACC, LACC is a tremendous terrain. I mean, it's rolling. It's unbelievable. And, and Thomas was a genius in both. But at, at the, where you are, I mean, he really had to create this. I mean, it's it's and the the green complexes, I think it's Crenshaw who said that he viewed Riviera as the greatest man-made course in the world because it really is. It's it's you had to sort of sculpt it out of there, kind of again, a lot little bit like what you were talking about, Pete doing at whistling straights, and sort of, and you're right, the tour players love it. I mean, the angles, the strategy. I've always said I could play the 10th hole 18 times for my round, and I'd enjoy that as a fun round. I mean, it's just, it's a brilliant course. I'm sure it's really a neat kick for you, um, you know, to be at a place like that for sure. Yeah, no question. And it, it was really, really special to get to spend a lot of time with Pete and Alice Ty. The, yeah. The I was at Kohler. Oh, I know. Yeah. Hearing their thoughts and design, how they did things. And here, obviously it was built in the twenties and there's a lot written about George Thomas. And obviously we have a lot of the old plans and photos and things from the twenties. You're absolutely right. It was, it was very man-made on the terrain that he had, but very, very man-made. Yeah. We're, we're at a very low point in the Canyon right? along the Creek bed, a mile from the ocean, but nothing on the ocean. We're basically in the runoff from the hillsides, right? What is upper Palisades and the canyons, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're in the, bottom runoff area basically in the canyon and he sculpted you know one of the best golf courses in the world and i think his to your point the way he laid out the golf course to make it so much about angles where the higher handicap player could play the golf course and enjoy it but it's going to test the really really skilled professional player because at that level and from their tees, if you're going to score, it is all about angles. We're oh. from the shorter tees and those. It's amazing to me on how good the golf course is, how great of a test it is when if you play the golf course, you really should never, ever lose a golf ball. Right. And you should never have a penalty stroke. Right. Exactly. And it's not difficult because of that. You know, it's not tricked up. It doesn't have tons of water. There's not out of bounds all over the place. It's, it's just a really good, fair test of golf. And he incorporated, you know, par fives that a strong player can hit into, par fives that are three-shot holes, the drivable, par four-tenth, as you said. He's got short par threes, you know, incredible long par three that Hogan said was one of the That's best. That's best, players. right. The fourth hole, right. Absolutely. You use just about every – you play the right tees for your game. You use just about every clip in the bag. Um, the green complexes are so unique. The bunkering has stood the test of time. I think it's some of the best bunkering of any golf course I've ever played from a standpoint. They're in the right places. Totally. They yeah. test the right type of shot. 
they allow you to take them on if you want to. And if you don't hit the right shot, they catch you. They're penal. They're not bunkers that you can easily get up and down, no question. Right. Better make sure not to short side yourself. Oh, yeah. All those things that he did that back in the 20s. Yeah. It's really stood the test to today, 100 years later. To me, I get caught a lot of times just marveling at what he did that has just stood the test for so, so long. And Marshall Dick, who's our superintendent, and I were reviewing some old photos and plans and seeing that some of the yardages on some of the most iconic holes here have literally not changed, changed since right. the 48 open. Right. You know, for the par three is like two yards difference. Right. One is the exact same yardage. 18 is two yards difference from, you know, from the 48 open to the Genesis right. Invitational this year. Yardage on most of the iconic holes hasn't changed but a handful of yards. It's, right. it's amazing that it has stood the test of time up against the greatest players in the world. I totally, totally agree. It's such such an incredible place. Um, so let me kind of turn it sort of towards the end of our discussion to um, the PGA, but I'm not shouldn't give the PGA of America short shrift. I mean, so you um, were all along, you've been active, not just as a PGA member, as we talked about earlier, but I think you're on the board of directors when you were in Wisconsin with District Six. Then, you know, became an officer, and and we've had a number of your um, colleagues on. Of course, we had Tom Addison a few months ago. Some other folks who have um, sat in your shoes. Um, and uh, but talk to me a little about what that was like in terms of seeking those national roles, and you know, becoming secretary, then coming up vice president, and then president, uh, the forty second president in twenty twenty. Um, what was that like? And I mean, it's a huge member organization and you're, as we alluded to coming from, you know, uh, a corporate executive position later in your career and kind of what was that all like? And what was your thought process to sort of do that? Cause it's a big job. I mean, it's a very time consuming job. Yeah. I think growing up in the family that I did, Larry, it was always pressed upon us that you needed to kind of be involved and you needed to serve in other ways. We, always very actively involved in the church with different groups. We're always actively involved in, you know, organizations with the community or organizations that were involved with the university my father worked at. So that was always really pressed upon us of the things that you needed to do to be involved with and kind of give back. So on that regard, you know, some of your listeners may not know the PG of America is the largest working sports organization in the world, you know, with over 25,000 members and, it's broken into 41 different kind of sections around the country and each section then has things that they do for, to promote junior golf, to promote the game itself for teaching and lessons uh, for charity work, foundation work, work that they do with veterans then doing their own local tournaments and things. So I was involved in a couple of the sections where I worked at that time in Marriott when I was fortunate enough to go to Kohler with some Straits and Black Wolf Run Obviously, they were very, very involved with the national PGA because of hosting tournaments. But they were very involved as well, too, locally with state opens and uh, charity events and giving back to organizations like the First Tee. Uh, they were very involved in that as well, too. So there, it was a natural kind of link of being involved locally because it tied into kind of the national relationships as well, too, because of some of the tournaments. And then the way the PGA board uh, is is set up and operated is those kind of different sections around geographically get to have a representative on the national board. 
So sometimes there's kind of a small kind of election you kind of run for it. Other times you get tapped or asked to do it to represent. And I happened to be working in Wisconsin at the time when that happened. I was involved with the local Wisconsin PJ section. I was also on the board of the amateur body, the Wisconsin State Golf Association. So kind of both factions mm. and had some individuals that I really respected at the time from my handful of years at that time in Wisconsin that kind of said, hey, would you consider this, right? Kohler's got a really great relationship. You already have a lot of business dealings with PGA. It'd be great to represent us and have that tie-in as well too. And, and so I considered it, talked to uh, Herb Kohler at the time and he supported it because it is a time commitment. And so I was kind of the representative for, they called you know, District 6, the upper Midwest, the states of Wisconsin, uh, Illinois, and Indiana, kind of representing that faction um, on the national board. So to your point, you know, it was one of 14 of these representatives from around the country. And then that's kind of chaired by a national officers that have to be elected into that office. I was finishing up my term, actually 15 was my last year as a national board member. And we were hosting the PGA championship at Whistling Strait. So right. It was kind of a neat combination of both um, to kind of have your fellow board members there at your facility. And at that facility, I had a couple of presidents of or past presidents of the organization. You mentioned one of them, Tom Addis, that you know, I had a few that said, hey, Jim, you know, would you consider, is it something you've thought about running for national office? And I hadn't at that point. Um, I, I had a few other things that to do in my day job and we yeah. had a lot going on right. and a lot of things. Right. And quite frankly, it's a very large time commitment to yeah. get involved as a national officer. Oh, and sure. I just didn't think I didn't think that would be feasible, quite frankly, uh, to also do the job at Kohler. And but I thought about it. I had a couple of those individuals continue those conversations and recommend it. They thought I might have something to offer. Um, and I went and had conversation with, with Herb Kohler about it, and uh, he was very supportive of it. So it was a, it was a juggling act, but uh, I, I, you have to actually run a campaign. And you ran, ran, I ran against a couple other PJ members from other areas of the country and was fortunate enough to be elected as the national secretary. And as that process goes, there are two-year terms. You, then you, you roll into what is the national vice president and then the national president. It's a little bit different responsibilities in, in the different roles. Secretary, you're really heavily involved in the membership matters, continuing education, employment opportunities, things of that nature, working with that part of the staff. As vice president, you're very involved in the financials of the organization on both the section level and the national level. Now we're utilizing our money and what we're supporting in different ways. And as president, you're kind of the chairman of the board and you're you're much more involved from a PR standpoint of doing the interviews and and television, radio, and things on behalf of the association as it might relate to, to what's going on in the golf world and with the PGA at that time. So it was it was a lot. It's a big commitment for anyone that does it and takes it on. Uh, there's a lot of travel. Uh, there's a lot oh, of yeah. time on the phone, extra emails, all those things, early morning, late nights. Uh, you have to have a very, very understanding family uh, because you end up missing out on a lot of family things. Sure. Uh, you have to have a very understanding and supportive club or a board or you know the, the boss or the entity that you work for uh, because because you are basically taking on two full-time jobs so i mean obviously something has to give they have to be understandable that you know, you're not going to be at the club 24 7 you're not going right. to be there all the time <clears throat> right. travel for different events and i was very very fortunate that uh, mr kohler 
supported it. I started out, Dana Garmany and Tim Shantz were very supportive of it in Troon. And I, when I moved over to Riviera, I had one year left uh, on my president's term and, and Mr. Watanabe and Megan Watanabe were very, very supportive of that as well too. So I was very, very lucky to have individuals that um, uh, allowed me that opportunity to be involved in that way. And, and uh, I'm very, very thankful for that. That's awesome. So um, now that you kind of wrapped it up, so your term, two-year term ended last November, kind of looking back, what would you sort of say your most significant accomplishments? And I'm kind of guessing if I'm thinking of the calendar right, that Frisco probably came to fruition under your watch. So um, wouldn't be surprised if that's somewhere on the list. But what what do you sort of view as your most significant accomplishments? Well, I think two things for the association while I was in that role. Um, my presidency started in November of 2020. So we were in the midst of all the COVID. Oh, yeah, right. And right. The golf course is shutting down and opening right. back up and taking steps backwards and forwards. Could we remain open? Could we not remain open? And it was different state by state in those early time frames. It was different sometimes county by county, city by city. Right. So, coming together as a industry, which the PGA, I believe, really, really led, you know, and kind of developed this playbook, so to speak, back to golf, but it was dealing with a lot of the political figures and health agencies throughout the country to prove that golf could continue to operate in a way that was safe based on what the health regulations were based on COVID, you know, single rider golf carts, right? having people check in online, not going inside of the clubhouses, right? moving food and beverage operations outside versus inside, you know, things that employees could do to still maintain the golf course, all the different things that had to happen and the continued, you know, just phone calls, emails, Zoom calls uh, with different regions of the country and political factions and medical factions to keep golf courses essentially open during that time frame and keep our people working. Um, I think that was a huge, huge accomplishment of the association at the time. We ended up, because of that, have garnered these millions of people that were new to the game or people that came back to the game because it was one of the activities they actually could do. Right. A lot of activities they couldn't, you know, and obviously now it's trying to keep and maintain all those people that are new to the right. game. Right. I think that was a huge, huge, uh, huge success for the association at the time. You're absolutely right. Frisco, Texas, and the new headquarters moving from Florida to Frisco you know, is, is going to be unbelievable, I think, for the association. The central location, very easy for people to get to. Those that are traveling that work there can, it cuts down on their travel time, getting back to their families. From a corporate rich environment, Dallas is a huge corporate rich environment. Sure. Tap into, um, I think from the standpoint, people are going to see it in a couple of weeks. The first televised championship we will have there is the KitchenAid Senior PGA. Right. I think people are going to be highly, highly impressed with the facility. We're getting great reviews from players and the media that have seen that. Um, but I think that's all the things that's great about golf. It's going to have two championship courses, but it's also going to have a nine-hole lighted par three course. It's also going to have a lighted 75,000 square foot acre putting course. It's going to have a retail space that's got those fun top tracer indoor swing yeah. suites and Yep. We're going to have an ice cream shop for the kids and all those different activities. So from, you know, as we kind of say, from cradle to grave, you know, we're going to have some type of golf offering to introduce somebody that's new to the game at any age up to the most advanced player at the professional level is going to be offered there. 
And you know, we're going to have state-of-the-art teaching and coaching center to introduce and develop people's games. We're going to have tie-ins with the local school systems and the high school community there in Frisco. And then all the different championships that will be there, both televised and untelevised. We'll have our national club pro championship there. We'll have our national assistance championship there. We'll have our boys and girls junior PGA championships there. So it's just going to introduce, I think, so many people from around the globe and around the world of golf to that but great partner with Omni Hotels, world-class resort that's on site, great corporate partners that are in that Dallas community, uh, great partners with the local PGA, the North Texas PGA. They moved their headquarters there as well, too. They mm. opened up their own teaching facility, their own practice facility, an artificial turf short course called the Ronnie, mm. named after a legendary PGA professional in that section who was a two-time president of the North Texas PGA, Ronnie Glanton. They've named it after him to honor him. But, you know, you're going to have the local, the North Texas is, is one of the greater um, junior program in the country. So North Texas has got unbelievable amount of junior programs that they do and junior tours. So they've moved their headquarters there. There'll be tons of activity from the junior space, you know, the high school player space, professional space. Uh, it, it's really going to just be a phenomenal facility. And there'll be so much activity there, not only at the competitive professional level, but at the introductory level, introducing new kids and new families and things uh, to the golf course. I think it's just going to be phenomenal. So that was a, a huge accomplishment of the association. Very proud to have been involved in that. And then well, from a personal standpoint, as you said earlier, I mean, getting a chance to be involved in the Ryder Cup at a place that I worked oh, at. Oh, yeah. yeah. had so many friendships. And <laughs> yeah. Just because of Kohler, the family had a relationship with Steve Stricker. He had a great right. relationship with the Wisconsin State Golf Association. Sure, yeah. PG of America. And so we got to know he and his family a little bit, you know, but – Having Steve be kind of a local son that was the captain to win at there and being involved with it was just very, very, from a personal standpoint, that that'll be a highlight and something I'll remember for a long time. Yeah, that's just awesome. Let me get you out of here kind of on this final question, kind of some of the other side of the ledger, but sort of what do you kind of see as the challenges for the PGA of America going forward and its members? And I guess, you know, as part of that, I think it was probably during your presidency when that Golf Digest article came out that was pretty dark or painted a somewhat dark picture of life as a, you know, club pro. And, um, you know, with kind of that in the back of our mind, what do you kind of see as a sort of a, um, challenges going forward for the PGA of America and its members? Well, that, that's definitely one of them. I mean, obviously, our pay scale for our uh, professionals, you know, needs to increase from what it is. You look at how golf courses and clubs are thriving, you know, waiting lists for membership, golf courses with full tee sheets. The bottom line financially is very, very healthy right now. But some of that needs to equate to the golf professional, the people that are stewarding and running those operations and bringing those people in and keeping them engaged in the game of golf. Um, you know, I'll steal a line from another officer, Don Ray, who said, you know, the golf professional is, is not a drag on the bottom line. You know, they are somebody that is a huge return on investment. Yeah. Hire the right people and give them the right support. You know, and, and one of the things we have to convince more operations about is the golf professional shouldn't be behind the counter in the golf shop. Right. Golf professional needs to be out developing the relationship with the golfers and the members, 
running the tournaments and getting that relationship to bring more people into playing it, teaching the game, yeah. making sure that the games of those members and guests improve. I don't know a single person whose golf game, if it improves, isn't having more fun. And when they have more fun, they play more golf. So, For sure. You know, and the person that can do that is a PGA member that's a bona fide teacher and instructor that can make that game more enjoyable through improving the skill level. And doesn't always mean that they're a scratch player, but you go from a 20 to a 15, you're a lot happier. You go from yeah. a 15 to a 10, you're enjoying the game more. So right. you get more families involved, learning the game together, playing the game together, something they can do as a family unit. Getting people introduced and staying in the game, you do that by them improving and having more fun. So you can't do that if you're behind a golf shop counter. You got to be able to get out. Clubs got to be able to understand that. Boards need to understand that. And they need to compensate the individual for that work that they're doing to attract new people, keep them engaged to return as a client, and then continue to spend money throughout the facility in more ways to continue to make sure that that bottom line is more healthy. So that is definitely one thing. I think the other is from a political standpoint, we always have, but we need to do more to really convince those that are on the Capitol Hills of not only the country, but every state as well, too, because things like you know, golf courses have not been involved in disaster release efforts in the past. And Hurricane Katrina came through and wiped a lot out down in New Orleans in that area. There was a lot of bills to kind of redo and support for disaster relief, many different businesses. Well, golf got excluded from that. We got included with the same businesses as liquor stores, you know, adult establishments, and golf courses were in that same realm with a couple other businesses because politicians viewed it as a very, very wealthy game that didn't need help. The people that played golf had the money and the owners of golf courses didn't need it and shouldn't be part of it. A lot of politicians don't understand the number of people that play, for one, over 25 million rounds of golf, the number of people that are working and the jobs that golf is creating, the people that are working in the business, the tax revenue that is being generated, and the amount of charitable donations that go back to the local community through the game of golf. And for golf to be excluded in that, when I understand I'm at a facility that is very much at the high end, very much at the high level. I grew up on a golf course that was a nine-hole golf course with no driving range. Out of the 15,000 roughly golf courses in North America, roughly 10,000 of them are public access. And if you take out the 1% of that 10,000, the remaining 99%, the average green fee, the last three-year average is about $48. So it is not a hugely wealthy sport. Right. It typically gets promoted in the media. It gets promoted by politicians that, hey, I can't take that on. I can't support you or that bill. I can't include you in this because I'm going to get hit by my constituents. They need a better understanding of what the game and the business of golf does for their local communities. And it, what it, you know, it's a $100 billion industry that's yeah. providing hundreds of thousands of jobs, tax revenue, uh, income into the local communities and charitable donations that go back out. It's a really, really important industry that I think supports a lot of local communities. And I don't think enough politicians really understand in the way that it, you know, in areas like California, it's politicians that want to take golf courses and turn them into, you know, housing. And things right. Like that. So, uh, and, I, and I get that there's challenges there as well too. But we as an association, we as an industry need to do a better job of telling our story and getting people to understand it. 
on why the business and why golf courses are important and what they really provide to those local communities through jobs, through tax revenue, through tourism dollars, and how all of that is important to those local communities that those public golf courses sit in. Yeah, both points well said. I mean, and you know, I, I sit on the SCGA board and, you know, and it's, I mean, Craig Kessler, as you probably is, you know, the advocacy role is really important in our sport and to make all the points you just, you know, articulated so well. And um, the other thing, talking about stealing lines, I'm, I, and I totally agree with your other point about the uh, getting the pro out of the shop. Um, I'm sure you've heard, uh, and I'm sure you know Eric Eshelman, you know, from the country that Burma is famous, saying, you know, he doesn't want to have any air-conditioned pros. You know, that is to say, and it's exactly, it's like a little phrase to make exactly the points you were making about how important it is to be out there on the on the tee with the members, lessons playing. And so both really, really good points. Um, Jim, I want to really thank you. I know how busy you are. I appreciate you taking the time. This has been great. Um, and um, I'm thrilled that you're part of uh, Southern California golf. And, um, you know, I'm looking forward uh, to, you know, the tournaments that have been announced coming to Riviera and hopefully some more on the way. So uh, in addition to the Genesis. So thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Larry, thanks for having me on. I got to say, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for all you do to promote the game, the way that you promote golf. Uh, you know, and all the benefits and all the great positives about the game of golf. So thanks for that. And hopefully you continue to do more of the same. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it.